Bibles and go with me again to Titus chapter 1. Be in verses 10 through 16 this morning. I believe you all noticed, I hope you did, that we can actually see some of the detail in our screen. That's a blessing. Um, I'm grateful for your patience. I know it was quite a process for us, one that we did not anticipate. And I especially want to thank our uh, tech team. They're here on Friday night for many hours um, getting this set up and figuring things out and making sure we are ready for worship this morning. So I want to thank them as well for their service to us that we could see and better understand as we work through scriptures together, um, as we worship together. Imagine for just a moment two military officers in two different scenarios. Both of them are responsible to train their men for battle. The first officer is training soldiers, though, in a time of peace. There's no imminent threat, and yet he's to have his men ready at a moment's notice should conflict arise. While the threat of hostility is always real, it's unlikely that his men will ever face any real conflict. The other officer is training his men in a time of war. He's not training them for some unknown future battle. He's training them for battles that are already being waged. He knows that very soon the men before him will be asked to risk their lives to protect the citizens of their country. Now which of these two officers will demand more of his men? Which of them will be most zealous to have them prepared for conflict? Certainly it'd be the man who knows the conflict to which he's sending his soldiers. And that's an analogy for us of the work that Paul and Titus are doing as they prepare to send men into conflict in these churches here on Crete. They're preparing to send men into a conflict in churches with very real and very sobering spiritual consequences. People's lives are being overturned spiritually by false teaching. God's people need protection through sound doctrine from godly leaders. The false teaching currently is going unchallenged. So the need is great and urgent. And perhaps most importantly, God's glory is being hidden by lies. Lies that assert that godliness is found in following the commands of men. The situation here on Crete is severe and godly elders then are needed. They must be men of Christ-like character, confident of the power of God's word to do God's work. Our passage this morning teaches us that elders must protect God's flock by refuting false teachers with his word. Let's look together at Titus chapter 1. We're going to back up just a verse and read verses 9 through verse 16. Titus 1 and verse 9. This is God's word to us. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. 
So that for the purpose that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. For or because there are many who are insubordinate or rebellious. They're empty talkers and deceivers. Especially or particularly those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach, what is not necessary to be taught. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, And the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God. But they deny him by their works. So they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's ask for his grace as we seek to understand this text before us. Father in heaven, we ask for your help to understand and apply your word this morning. We want to be faithful to it. We want to be changed by it. And we recognize that only happens through the power of the spirit, illuminating our understanding and enabling us to obey. Father, we do have new hearts as new creatures in Christ. And yet we still need your help to follow you. To follow our king. We desire to do so. So may you help it to be so. In Jesus name. Amen. Over the last several weeks we've been working through Paul's letter. His short letter to Titus. In the introductory verses Paul gives an explanation of his ministry burden. He's setting an example of the passion that all godly leaders in the church should have. They're to see themselves as servants or slaves of God for the sake of God's people. They're not seeking attention or influence or power for themselves. They want to serve. Then in verse 5, we identified the mission for Titus that Paul had given him, had commanded him. He was to install healthy, spiritually mature men into the leadership of those churches there on Crete. And then last week, we considered together what these men were to look like. And remember, the qualifications focused on the character of spiritually mature men. Character always trumps ability. This morning in verses 10 through 16, we're going to see why godly elders who can both teach sound doctrine and refute error are so vital to these churches. John Stott writes in his excellent book on preaching between two worlds, more often than we like to admit, the pew is a reflection of the pulpit. Seldom, if ever, can the pew rise higher than the pulpit. It's a fitting summary of Paul's instructions to Titus about leadership in the church from our text this morning. The pew is a reflection of the pulpit. That's Paul's concern in this text. This morning we'll consider three things. The description of these false teachers, the action that Titus is commanded to take, and the discernment that these instructions 
help provide to us. First, a description of the false teachers provided. Notice how verse 10 connects to verse 9. It's a continuing thought. Verse 10 begins with the word for, or we could say because. Elders must hold fast to God's word, not to their skill in rhetoric, their skill in communication, their abilities, but to God's word in order to teach sound doctrine and refute error because false teachers will always threaten God's people. And God's people will always be tempted to follow. On Crete, we're told in verse 10, there are many, many false teachers So we see that the teaching was coming from within, from within the churches. That makes it even more deceitful. God's people, when they're gathered, they expect to be able to trust the leaders in front of them. And yet that's not the case here. So the task that Paul has given to Titus is going to be an uphill climb. What warning does Paul give about these teachers? What are are they like? First, he says they're insubordinate. They're rebellious. They're rebelling against the truth of the gospel by adding the commands of men. They're also empty talkers or foolish babblers. They have a whole lot to say. But none of it's helpful, ultimately. Finally, he describes them as deceivers. Their teaching leads God's people the wrong way. They're leading people astray. They're distracting them from the truth and turning their attention to things that are contrary to healthy doctrine. Now, we don't know exactly what form this false teaching took here in this first century church. Though I do believe we have enough information here to get a general idea of what they were emphasizing. Verse 10 ends by identifying them as part of the circumcision party. So they're primarily emphasizing the necessity of adding good works, outward religious deeds to faith in Christ. They'd say Christ is good and fine, but if you're a real Christian, you're going to do these things as well. In verse 11, we get to the heart of Paul's concern for why these false teachers must be stopped. He says they're upsetting or overturning whole families. By teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They're upsetting entire families. Perhaps this is even house churches. But they're destroying or deceiving. The solution is they must be silenced. The phrase could be translated, it is necessary to muzzle them. They're like a loud, annoying, barking dog. That's doing nothing to help or protect. They're just making noise. And he's saying they must be silenced or quieted. Their teaching must stop because it's influential in a dangerous way. Now in verse 12, Paul includes a quote from one of their own philosophers. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now I'll confess for much of the week, the inclusion of this quote puzzled me. It made me wonder what what kind of false teaching are we dealing with? Is it maybe two-pronged or two different types of heresies? This Jewish circumcision type teaching, additions to faith or the gospel, and then this kind of license, you know, they're, they're lazy liars, evil beasts. 
Is it both legalism and license, a work-based religion and an embrace of worldliness? Maybe. But I think after studying it this week, I now believe that Paul is using this very unflattering portrayal of the Cretan culture. And he's applying it directly to the false teachers themselves. You see, they're recognizing a secular worldly culture and saying, we can tell you how to learn to live in a godly way. And it's going to be Jesus plus something. And what Paul is saying is that their works-based teaching is actually a mask for the same self-indulgent godlessness of their culture. It's actually the same thing. It may be two sides of the same coin. They're pretending to care about the things of God, and yet they're complete hypocrites, lying, taking financial advantage from people who haven't been taught any better. Verse 15 seems to confirm this understanding. They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. See, they're still selfish and greedy, as this philosopher had stated. They're simply dressing up their motives in religious-sounding clothing. I want to highlight three characteristics of this false teaching briefly to kind of get an eye or an understanding of, of what this really looks like. First, false teaching adds works to salvation by grace alone in Christ alone. These teachers claim to believe in Jesus as Messiah and Savior, but they're insisting that he's not enough. He's not enough. He's not sufficient. That's not all you need to be right with God. Instead, true believers must follow the Old Testament laws as well. They taught that circumcision was necessary. Jewish myths were to be believed. Specific aspects of the Old Testament law to be followed, likely focusing on the food laws. Second, false teaching fails to focus on Christ. As we read this text, it seems that Paul is greatly troubled over this false teaching. In fact, he gives a stronger response to those teaching a works religion than he gives to godless worldliness. Jesus does this as well. He has no stronger word for any group than he does for the religious leaders of the Jews. Paul's strongest statements of rebuke come perhaps in the book of Galatians where he vehemently corrects false teaching about works righteousness. He even risks his relationship with Peter because Peter is treating uncircumcised, believing Gentiles with some level of contempt. So the question is why? Why does this arise in their hearts, Peter and Jesus, such, why does it bring to the surface such passions and strong rebuke? Well, here's the heart of the issue. False teaching like this blinds people's minds to their real need. It hides the truth from them. It lies to them that if they only behave in a certain way, if they adhere to the practices of Judaism, including circumcision, following food laws, then they can receive God's favor. You can get there on your own. This Jesus plus some kind of human work type of teaching is evil because it hides Christ. 
It hides his righteousness behind man's apparent ability to earn God's favor. It deceives people into thinking that grace is not all that's necessary. That Christ's work is not actually that valuable. That human effort is spiritually beneficial on its own. It elevates man and his ability and it minimizes God and his grace. Do you see that? It hides the gospel behind good works. That scripture calls filthy rags at best. It deceives people from seeing their true need and then hides the solution as well. It says that your heart isn't really all that bad. The danger is out there. And if you can just clean up the outside by how you behave and the practices you put on, then you can be okay. But that's a lie. The danger is in here. It's in the heart of man. Man's real need is to see himself as a sinner, completely void of any good deeds. Paul writes in Romans 3, and I want you to listen to how often he uses the word no or none. We know this passage well, but I want you to hear the emphasis for yourself. Paul writes, what then? Are we Jews any better off? So he's addressing this same issue here in Romans 3. He says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. We have the same problem. And he summarizes, as it is written, none is righteous. So in case that statement's not enough, he says it again, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Again, if we've missed it, he says, finally, no one does good. Not even one. If we don't realize our need, we can't find the solution. And Paul makes very clear in Romans, in Titus, what the need is. The true solution then can be found in Christ alone apart from the works of the law. Paul writes again in Romans 3 that we're justified, declared righteous by faith in Christ apart from anything that we can contribute. So do you see why in the Reformation era, when the Catholic Church is saying, you have to come through us, you have to do works. They said, no, there's five solas or five onlys. Scripture alone teaches God's grace alone. Received by faith in Christ alone. For God's glory alone. You see, the alones matter. They matter. And they fight our human nature and our temptation to say, well, if I just do good things then God will be happy or pleased with me. Now, we're going to talk about in the book of Titus where works come in. That godliness is a fruit of the gospel. It is a necessary consequence and outworking of the gospel. But these false teachers are saying, this is how you get God on your side. You can manipulate him with religiosity. Thirdly, False teachers take advantage for their own gain. 
Paul says here that these men are teaching for shameful or disgraceful gain because they are liars. They're revealing their true nature. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. And speaking of the dangers of false teaching in other contexts, I've heard over and over again that in many poor countries, the prosperity gospel is especially appealing and dangerous. When we visited Dan Huffstetler, who was in Kenya at that time, he showed us the church complex of that movement. It attracted thousands upon thousands of very poor Africans. He took us through the city of Kenya and we drove through streets of poverty that I've never seen before in my life. And that church was especially dangerous because they were telling those kind of people, you can get the riches you want in this lifetime by putting faith in God and giving us whatever money you have. This complex was massive. And from a human perspective, it was thriving. It was doing well. But it was completely destroying people's lives and blinding them to their real need of Christ. They only saw Jesus as a temporal, material benefactor or genie. I was talking to Daniel Mee a couple of months ago when he was here. And he shared with me almost the exact same story of that kind of teaching in Colombia. The so-called pastors twist the scriptures. And they teach the people that if only they have enough faith. That God will heal them of their diseases. He will bless them with better material possessions. With houses and cars and just a great life now. All they have to do to demonstrate that their faith is real. Is by giving sacrificially to that pastor and that ministry. They're fleecing the people. They're immensely wealthy pastors. And the end result is that the people are poorer and these so-called pastors are incredibly wealthy. He shared of one man that he was sharing the gospel with and that man said, I will never go to church because I went there and they said that would solve my need and it just made my life worse. They're hardening people's hearts to the truth. When a person would come and tell these pastors that their sacrifices, their giving, their prayers had not turned out the way that they had promised, the teachers then merely respond that the person didn't demonstrate enough faith. They needed to truly give their whole heart and more money. And the cycle starts all over. You see this over and over again in the New Testament. You see it in our modern world. We see it in church history. This is one of the things that turned Martin Luther's heart to considering what was happening. He visited Rome and saw the incredible wealth and lavish spending on foolishness. And he's saying, how can a person be right with God? And what does this have to do with it? What we see here in Titus is that wrong doctrine always results or is accompanied by ungodly behavior. Number two, a decisive action toward false teachers commanded. In verse 13, Paul affirms that this secular philosopher's description of the nature of the Cretans was specifically true then of these false teachers. Therefore, the proper course of action was strong, sharp rebuke. Verse 14 continues that point. 
They're to hold no longer to Jewish myths and the commands of men who reject belief in the truth. The false teaching distracts from the main focus of Scripture. What God's people need to hear is the word. Unleash the word. Don't follow the commands of men. Pastor Alistair Begg, I think, rightly summarizes the proper focus of biblical teaching. He says again and again, it's kind of his motto, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. What's the heart of the scriptures? What's it about? All these side conversations and figuring out of genealogies or these obscure doctrines? No, the heart is about Christ. How he changes the lives of sinners. Paul in this letter provides three ways to silence the false teachers. First, he's to take away their opportunity to speak. Titus is not to let them teach anymore. The goal is to silence or muzzle them. Their place of leadership needs to be taken away so that they can't keep speaking falsehood. Second, he's to overpower their false teaching with sound doctrine. He's to convince that that teaching is wrong by teaching correct doctrine. The truth of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And over time, the faithful, consistent teaching of the truth wins the day. It will ultimately defeat the weakness of false teaching. Finally, he's to discredit them with godly living. Do you see how the character qualifications of 6 through 9 stand in such stark contrast to what these false teachers look like and demonstrate the power of the gospel? These teachers' lives and actions demonstrate it has no power to change them at all. They're still just like they were. They're just like the rest of culture. It's just dressed up in different clothing. But godly leaders are to model how gospel truth changes them. Their lives will be different. Number three, a discernment about false teaching gained. In verse 15, we come to the underlying principle of Paul's argument against this false teaching. Look again at verse 15. It says, to the pure... All things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. This kind of seems confusing as well. What's what's this proverb doing almost in the middle of this section about false teaching? I think this is really the core of what Paul is teaching in this letter. He's saying, where does godly living and ungodly living come from? Ungodly living comes from an unregenerate heart. True godly living comes from a heart that's been made new in Christ. The core of this false teaching was that purity or godliness can be found in religious commitments. They're thinking they're clean ceremonially by obeying the Old Testament laws. It's very likely they're emphasizing the things that we've said, circumcision and diet. But Paul is essentially repeating what Jesus taught in Mark 7 that we heard read for us this morning. To the one who's been cleansed by faith from within, it's from inside out. All things are clean. Remember, even there, the gospel writer includes that little paraphrase, or that that phrase in parentheses, rather. 
This was to declare that all foods were clean. This is setting up that vision that Peter gets of the sheet coming down. And he's saying the Old Testament law about the food is done. Gentiles can come in. That's the whole point. And they don't have to follow those Old Testament laws anymore. The opposite is true. To the person who is still morally bankrupt, nothing, nothing he does is clean. Even worship before God is unclean because his heart is still unclean. Remember what Samuel says to Saul when Saul is seeking to honor God in sacrifice, even after he's disregarded God's word. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To listen than the fat of rams. God doesn't want worship without true heart submission and obedience. Hosea 6.6 affirms this again. God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, religious observance cannot change your heart. And yet by nature, we are all self-righteous people. We want to find a checklist that we can fill out. That we can feel like we're doing something that would be pleasing to God. Instead of dealing with our sin, God's way. David affirms that God is not impressed by an outward show of religiosity. He wants our hearts. David writes, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's so easy for us as humans to want to reform our lives merely by seeking to change our behavior. But God says it starts in our hearts. He's commanded us To love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when in humility we start there, we are willing. We are then able to change by his grace. We're eager to embrace and apply what he says about how we're to live. We don't feel like we have to add things on top of the word. We're willing and eager to make him first in our lives and our actions. And that will bear itself out in our love and submission to him. This is the central theme of the letter. Paul's demonstrating that the pathway to godly living comes from a growing understanding of gospel grace. In chapter 2, 11 through 14, and then again in chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, Paul will explain that the saving grace of God continually teaches And motivates us to say no to sinful desires and yes to godliness. This does not mean that godliness has no part in a Christian's life. This does not mean we don't take seriously the call to live wholly different lives in the world. It's saying we start in a different place. See, Paul is teaching in this letter the gospel changes everything about us. And it most certainly leads us to good works and godly living. It actually raises the bar. It doesn't just say this is outward show. 
He writes in chapter 3, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. And he ends that section so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Paul's saying a person who understands God's saving grace will be zealous to follow him in their obedience. Back in verse 16, Paul summarizes his final description of the false teachers. They profess, they say, they declare that they know God. They claim they're believers and followers of Christ. Yet by their fruit, do they reveal what they really are. By their deeds, they deny him. Paul very likely has Isaiah 29, 13 in mind, where the Lord says, these people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they've been taught. This is the same condemnation Jesus gave of the Pharisees. Righteous works are not the problem. Why you're doing them, who you're really serving in them is the issue. Paul asserts again in verse 16 that they are detestable. This is a very strong description identifying those things that cause horror and disgust in God's sight. To him, they're the very opposite of what they claim to be. They're disobedient to the truth of the gospel handed down by the apostles. They're unfit for any good work. One commentator notes there's obvious irony here. Those who trusted in works are unfit for real good works, which God desires for all believers to put on. They continue, the source of this recurrent problem of works righteousness is found in the very nature of humans. Proud, self-centered human nature desires to have some control and to make some contribution toward salvation. To become utterly dependent on God's grace for forgiveness and salvation requires a genuine confession. Aptly summed up in the words of our familiar hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross. I cling. These opponents thought that belief and practice could be separated. It didn't matter that they said one thing and did another. And Paul's going to spend most of the rest of the letter arguing that God's saving work and the believer's life of obedience have to go hand in hand. They must go together. If the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, it must be changing you. Matthew Henry notes, there are many who in word and tongue profess to know God and yet in their lives and conversations deny and reject him. Their practice is a contradiction to their profession. Now, does that application summary ever ring true of you in the way that you are living? I can't help but recognize that often in my own mind and in my own life, I can convince myself that I'm doing the right things. Therefore, I must be right with God. I take it for granted that perhaps I have not submitted my heart, confessed my desire to make myself more important than I ought to be.
can convince myself I'm doing a right thing and so I must have a right heart before God. But that's not always the case for us, is it? We're accepted by God through the work of our Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must be eager to obey and serve him in response. What Paul is saying is that godly living starts with truth about Christ and who we've been made in him. Otherwise, it does end up being about me. The impression I'm wanting to give others about me. Or even the points I'm seeking to somehow earn with God. Do you see how I'm serving you? The question this passage and the message of the letter causes me to ask myself is, am I obeying and following King Jesus because I love him? Because I want to serve him? Or am I falling back into a religious mindset? Do you see how all of God's people, including the elders, are dependent on the good shepherd? What resource has God provided to enable churches to grow healthy? The conclusion here this morning is that we are to follow, promote, and encourage godly leaders sacrificially investing in your protection from false teaching. Follow, promote, and encourage godly leaders who are doing this work of protecting you from false teaching. Mark Dever makes this point well when he says one of the most important things any pastor or elder will do for you is something that you may never notice. It's not visiting hospitals, successfully leading a church to expand its budget, or ensuring that his sermons have clear outlines. All of those are important And very often necessary things to do. Instead it is this. Working hard to know scripture. In order to protect you from current false teachings. Which are useless. Of no benefit. Dangerous. And divisive in the church. One of the best ways that you can encourage your pastors. Is to study. And to investigate the word of God for yourself. Think of how Paul was encouraged by the Berean believers as they studied the word of God for themselves. They're seeing if what he's teaching was actually what God's word said. They're not taking it for granted that Paul is this Jewish scholar that has great learning, that he's an apostle. They're still saying, does that square with God's word? And Paul encourages them, keep doing that. That's right. All believers should do this. Study the word for yourself. Your pastors love to discuss God's word with you. It's one of the most encouraging things that we get to do week in and week out. Notice I said discuss, not debate. And we're sharpened when we discuss the scriptures, not just our conclusions or traditions surrounding a text. We all want to come to the text and say, what does it say? Not what do I remember somebody back then saying it said. What does it say? How do I learn how to study it better? We want to help each other know and dig into the word more and more. So that it continues to change us. 
so that it prepares us to speak faithfully to others of our faith in Christ. We're not just studying it to grow our own knowledge, but to share it. The more we learn of Christ in the word, the more eager we are to tell others of him. The issue isn't that we have too much word, so we're unwilling to share it. The issue is that word hasn't gone deep enough to create in us a passion for Christ that we would open our mouths and tell others of him. We don't have enough word. We're just assuming we have the surface level amount instead of letting it go deep and drive our conviction and our practice. There's a regular group in our church family that I email each week, early in the week, to invite their prayers for me as I work through the passage for the coming Sunday. That means so much to me, and I believe God has blessed us together as we're encouraged in our dependence on him each week to receive the food from his word. What we're doing in this is partnering together and saying the word is what we need. I also meet with a group of men each Friday to discuss the passage as we consider what it meant then and how it applies today. And I just give you these examples as a way to encourage you. We're to do this study of the word together. We come under it together. You can also pray for your leaders that they will faithfully serve and protect you by teaching and promoting healthy doctrine. Our awareness of the dangers of false teaching should be raised from this passage. We should understand it's a very real and present threat, even in our church today. So we pray that we will love God's word more and more, that together we would grow deeper in our conviction, our rock solid belief that what we need is the word of God because it is sufficient to change our lives. It alone is sufficient. There are always temptations toward methods, toward practices that seem to be perhaps more relevant, that seem to be more effective, that seem to show more immediate fruit. But pray that we will understand and apply the word each week faithfully and carefully for the church family. Pray for your leaders and teachers in the church. Christopher Columbus was stranded in Jamaica and he needed supplies at one point in his journey. He knew that a lunar eclipse was to occur the next day and he told the tribal chief, unless you give me supplies, the God who protects me will punish you. The moon shall lose its light. When the eclipse darkened the sky the next day, he got all the supplies that he needed. He tricked them. In the early 1900s, an Englishman tried the same trick on a Sudanese chief. If you do not follow my orders, he warned, vengeance will fall upon you and the moon will lose its light. The chief replied, if you're referring to the lunar eclipse, that doesn't happen until the day after tomorrow. That chief was protected from deception because he knew the truth. Do you see? It's the responsibility of elders to protect the flock from deception by teaching God's truth. By refuting the many false teachings that prey upon the untaught in our day. It's the responsibility of the members of the church to follow the elders that God has given them. To hear the word carefully, examine it for themselves. 
follow the example of godly men who've given their lives to study the word. God is growing our own church family and our love for the word. It is wonderful to see. It's so encouraging to see. Our conviction as a body has grown deeper and deeper. But that only happens as individual members commit themselves to growing in the word themselves. Perhaps you're hearing that said and you're like, well, I'm not sure I actually see that. Are you growing in your love of the word? Are you investing in it with other members of the body? Are you seeing how it works as you talk with other believers who are growing in that same passion? Paul says in Romans 12 too, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So may our God continue to shape us by his word and its faithful proclamation. And may we guard ourselves against the temptation to lean on anything else, to lean on anything other than Christ for our growth in godliness. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we are so thankful for your word which instructs us what to look out for. It instructs us of the nature of our hearts, what we're going to be pulled away from, what tools the devil will use to distract us, to steal away our growth, to veil from us our Christ. Lord, help us to understand as we continue to work through this letter how the gospel motivates us to say no to our own flesh, to say yes to the spirit, to self-control, to godliness, to holiness. Help us to recognize that if we don't love Christ, we won't seek to put on his character. So may we grow in our love of our savior. May we be eager to hear his call to follow him. May we recognize that he's not not just saved us from our sins, that we could live now any way we want to, but we're called to be new creations, to demonstrate the power of the gospel, to change sinners into followers of the king, that this gospel is powerful. It's able to make us new, that you would receive all the honor and glory from the way that we teach, from the way that we live. So, Father, we're grateful this morning for your provision of this food from your word. We pray now as we turn our attention to this table that we would recognize that in it we are given a visible, tangible demonstration of your love for us and the love that we're to have for one another as we celebrate this supper together.